Daniel chapter 8. One day, a friend was talking to a frog. And he was talking about his future. And he said to the frog, you are going to meet a beautiful young woman. And from the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to to know you. She will want to know all about you. Uh, She will be compelled to get close to you. And uh, you will fascinate her, the friend said to the frog. And the frog was really excited. The frog said, "Uh, where will I meet her? Will it be at the single study? (laughs) And the friend said, no, it will be in the biology class. (laughs) Kind of funny, huh? (laughs) Do you know your future? Do you know your future? We know some things about our future, huh? But for the, for the most part, a lot of our life, we don't, we don't really know the future. Man, he doesn't really know the future, especially on this side of time. You guys remember the statement by Lee DeForest. He was a famous inventor in 1926. He said, ah, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which should waste little time dreaming about. He said the TV doesn't have a chance. Oh, he was wrong. (laughs) And then there's uh, Thomas Watson in 1943, the chairman of the board at IBM. He said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. Again, very wrong. (laughs) Then there's a recording company expert in 1962 who said, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Didn't know the future, huh? And a lot of us here, I think, we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't know the future, but God does, right? I was talking to a guy today, and, you know, uh, my prayer is that God would reconcile his marriage, but, man, his wife wants a divorce. She wants a divorce after 17 years of marriage in Christ. You would have never thought it would happen. And the guy is just devastated. But I told him, I said, you know, you fight for your marriage. Nehemiah 4.14 says, fight for your wives. And you pray and you do everything you can to bring that reconciliation. But I said, I want you to know this, that no matter what, God has a future for you. See, the future is our friend when Jesus is our Lord. And I think that when we read through the book of Daniel, God wants us to know that he knows the future and that he's, uh, he's on the throne. He alone is on the throne. And we have to know that. You know, what we're going to see today is not only is God in control of kingdoms, he's in control of kings. Not as only is God in control of dynasties, he's in control of details. Not only is God a general God, he's a personal God. And he's a powerful God. And so don't be discouraged. Even though Satan's doing his thing in the different kingdoms, countries, counties, cities of the world, that should then press us in our hearts to respond in a certain way. Jesus is doing something too. And that should bless us 
in a certain way. What's the devil doing? He's taking a lot of people to hell, right? That's what he's doing. And some of you here, maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you're not a Christian, man. God loves you. God brought you here today, not just to go to church, but to go to heaven. And so what he did was he sent Jesus who died on a cross for you and all your sins were put on him. He loves you so much. And what he did was he was crucified, put in a, in a tomb, but, but you probably even know that he rose the third day. And here's the thing, that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be free. And God is able to do anything. I was so blessed in first service because we've been praying for this one brother. And it's just he, to me, is an inspiration, his sister as well. But he was facing his third strike. And the judges said, we're going to put you in prison for 37 years to life. But we began to pray and pray and pray and cry and cry and cry and talk and talk and talk. And the next thing you know, the judge says, okay, nine months. Next thing you know, three weeks, and he was here today. And more than that, he has been set free eternally because it was through this whole thing that, that he got saved. See, the Lord is good, and the Lord is able, and the Lord has a future for us. And my prayer is that you would make Jesus your Lord so that your future will be a friend. Because let me also say this. If you live your own life, if you do your own thing, if you choose to continue to live in die-cast rebellion to God, if you choose your sin over your Savior, then the future is not your friend. But you see, the choice is yours. In Daniel, we see that. God's in control, and he wants us to know that. He wants us to know about what the devil's doing, but he also wants us to know what Jesus is doing. You guys know Jesus is coming? Amen. He could be here any moment now. I wish it would happen like right now, you know. But did you guys also know the devil is coming? The devil's coming. Yeah, well, Jesus is here because he's omnipresent. The devil is here because he walks back and forth on the earth and he has his army. But the devil is coming in the Antichrist. And one day he will rise up to power. And it just looks like things are lining up soon and very soon. Martin Luther thought it was the Pope of his day. During the 40s, we thought it was Hitler. Uh, some today, um, the, you know, a lot of times it was Clinton. Hey, they think Clinton's the Antichrist or Obama. People always have these speculations, right? I think the Antichrist is alive. But we won't see him if we're a church because we're going to get raptured out. Before then, but God wants us to know these things. Look what we read here in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Remember, the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. And so the events here in chapter 8 actually take place prior to chapter 5. In chapter 7, last time we were together, Daniel had a vision of beasts, and that was the first year of Belshazzar. Here we see that it's the third year of Belshazzar, right around 551 B.C. You know, something that's kind of interesting is now in verse 1 of chapter 8, the Hebrew language resumes. Uh, if you remember, back in chapter 2, 
what we found in verse 4 all the way to chapter 7, verse 28, the book was written in Aramaic language because the emphasis in those chapters is on the Gentile kingdoms and history and prophecy. But from chapter 8 to the end of the book of Daniel, the text is written in Hebrew. Why? Because a major emphasis in these chapters is on God's plan for the nation of Israel in the end times. And so we read here in verse 1 that a vision, Daniel says, appeared to me. And he repeats that to me, you know, Daniel. And he says in verse 2, then I lifted my eyes and saw And there was standing beside the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one uh, came up last. And so Daniel sees a vision, and he sees a ram with two horns. One horn is uh, higher than the other. Now, what I want to do today is I want to go through the first 14 verses just at face value hopefully kind of getting the picture of what Daniel saw, his vision that he paints. And then what we're going to do in verse 15 is we'll let Gabriel uh, give us the interpretation for what these things mean, what they symbolize. And so you got to get the visual, first of all, of a ram. And I think we have a picture of a ram. Yeah, it's kind of cool, huh? Beautiful, really, I think. And uh, this is what Daniel saw. Now, Daniel's ram was a little different because one... A horn was higher than the other. And, um, you know, the ram, look what it says right there in verse 4. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And so what's the ram doing? He's just ramming, huh? (laughs) I mean, he's just pushing westward, northward, and southward, No one could stop it. The Bible says it did whatever it wanted to do. Uh, It became great. Now, again, in Daniel's earlier visions, he saw more along the line of like these beasts that were, you know, strange. Now we see more towards what we would call domesticated animals, although not 100 percent. And anyways, he sees this powerful ram running, ramming, pushing, plowing through territory, seemingly unstoppable. But then we read in verse five. And as he was considering And I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And so we move from the ram to a a male goat. I think we have a picture of a male goat as well. You're pretty cool, huh? I I just, the goatee, it makes me want to grow a goatee. It really does. You know, but it, it talks about this male goat. Now, male goats are not known to run fast, but this one does. Uh, male goats are not known to fly, but this one pretty much flies. He doesn't touch the ground, right? And he comes from the west, the Bible says, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And another thing that's different about this goat is that it had a notable horn, a prominent horn, a conspicuous horn right there between his eyes. You know, and that, this goat right here, he doesn't look that tough. Like, how did he beat up the ram? Uh, we have another another goat. Check out this goat. 
he looks kind of cool, huh? We're like, hey, maybe that mountain goat uh, can do the job. Um, but it runs at the ram with furious power and rage, attacking it, breaking both its horns, casting him down. Notice this, trampling him underfoot. That ram that at one time was unstoppable is now powerless against the male goat. And so you're catching the vision, right? And so we read then in verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And so the male goat grew to the very be very great, but it says when he became strong, and other versions say at the height of its power, that large horn right there between his eyes was broken and then replaced by four notable horns. And we actually have a picture of a goat with four horn, horns, and uh, you'll see these every once in a while. And so it's the same goat, but now that single horn is replaced with four horns uh, that are coming up toward the four winds of heaven. But then something really different happens. Uh, look at verse 9. And out of one of them grew a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days. Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So we move now. First, he talks about a ram with two horns, one higher than the other. Then he speaks of a male goat with a horn right there in between the eyes. But then that single horn is replaced with four horns. But then one of those gets replaced by a little horn that then grows and to be a, become a big horn. And, and now we're talking about horns. Um, we're not talking about animals as much, right? Because in the Bible, and this is part of the reason we know this, horns are symbolic of powerful leaders. And so uh, we see this happen, not, no longer reading about animals. And he didn't stay small long. It grows exceedingly toward the south and the east. And notice there in verse 9, if you would, he, he, he grows toward the glorious land. The glorious land. Now, other translations identify this land as the beautiful land. If you have a New Living Translation, it identifies it as Israel. It's, this is Israel, the glorious land. How many of you guys have ever been to Israel? Anyone here ever been to Israel? Okay, we have to go because only Patrick and Gina, they're the only ones that have gone. Oh, and my wife, she's gone. A couple of you. I think we should go to Israel, man. You know, it's the glorious land. It's the beautiful land. You see... It's written in Hebrew now because God's going to be dealing with the people of Israel. When you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's not done with the Jews. There are some churches out there, um, and they'll teach you that God's not dealing with the Jews anymore. They say the church has replaced Israel. 
That is a lie. It is a huge lie. In 1948, Israel became a nation again. In 1967, they regained Jerusalem again. Whatever you do, do not believe that theology that's found sometimes in Christian churches. They say God's not dealing with Israel yet. God doesn't have a plan for Israel anymore. Oh, yes, he does. This glorious land. Now written in Hebrew, Romans 9, 10, and 11 says, Hey, God says, I'm still dealing with them. The church is grafted in. But they haven't been replaced. And what we find is, you know, Daniel here uh, deals with the horn. It goes higher. But this is different, you guys. This horn, it says in, in verse 10, it goes higher and higher and higher. If you can visualize a horn going higher and higher and higher. And it goes into the host of heaven, it says. And we read there in verse 10 that he casts down some of the host. He casts down some of the stars to the ground, and then he tramples over them. You know, and you read this up to this point, the horn is translated as an it, but then in verse 11, the horn is a he. It's a he. And what he does is he exalts himself as high as the prince of the host and refers to an army in war and warfare. That's what host is. And we read why in verse 12, because of transgression, an army was then given over to him, and the horn even has the capacity to somehow take away the daily sacrifices and cast them down to the sanctuary. Look at verse 12. This is, this is crazy. It says, and he even cast truth down to the ground. That's what this horn does, right? It's, it's crazy. And he prospers in all these things. And so, I don't know how Daniel saw that. I'm like, how did Daniel see that he cast truth down to the ground. How did Daniel see, you know, these stars and hosts and all this kind of, and we don't know for sure, but we're going to see later, it really impacted him when he saw these things. And then he even hears something. Um, He hears the Holy One speaking to each other. And they're asking a question, how long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? And, How long will the temple and heaven's armies be trampled on? And Daniel also hears the answer, 2,300 days. And then the sanctuary would be cleansed. The sanctuary would be reconsecrated. The temple would be made right again and restored to its rightful state. And so that's the vision that Daniel saw. That's even within the vision, those words that Daniel heard. Now we move from the vision to the interpretation. Because look at verse 15. And then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. So he came near when I stood and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Now, we read there in verse 15, 
Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. He was seeking the meaning. And, and you know, that's a good thing to do regarding God's revelation. Uh, sometimes my daughter will wake up and for whatever reason, my daughter has a lot of dreams and she's not like me because she remembers them. All right. And she'll always tell first she tells her brother. And then if Aaron thought it was good, then he says, OK, tell dad. All right. And so we, you know, and, I, and I, at first I was I, I wouldn't really pay attention. But then the Lord one day he just got a hold of me. He said, you know, maybe. Maybe there's something in those dreams. And so what I do is I listen and then I I bring it before the Lord. Lord, is there anything of significance here? And, you know, again, don't overestimate dreams. Uh, The Bible says that dreams are like the chaff and the word of God is the wheat. But sometimes God can speak through a dream. All I know is that when I'm reading my Bible and when I'm hearing a study when I even maybe get a, a dream, I will sometimes seek the meaning of these things, just like, you know, Daniel did. And I want to encourage you to listen. I want to encourage you to do the same. I want to encourage you, when you get in God's revelation, as you read the word, study it out, pray it out. Don't just go to the commentaries and say, well, what does this man say? He's just a man. You know, the author of the book lives inside of you. Seek the meaning of it diligently and prayerfully. And, you know, God might answer. One day he might send an angel to you like like he did here with Daniel. But I know that he answers. We read in verse 15 that suddenly one appeared before him. He looked like a man. And then Daniel heard a man's voice from the banks of the river. And I said, Gabriel. Help this guy. (laughs) Make him understand. And I love that. All the things that I want him to know, reveal it to him, right? And so Gabriel comes closer to Daniel, right? And when he did, when Gabriel started getting closer to him, suddenly the Bible says that Daniel just fell on his face, man. Like a deep sleep. It was a fear that came near when Gabriel then draws closer, and, uh, you know, Gabriel then touches him, picks him up, and communicates the fact that the vision is prophetic. It refers to the future. And, you know, he says, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen, Daniel, in the latter time of the indignation. You know, and I would venture to say that we have all probably come across angels. Uh, Most of the time, though, their glory is veiled. Um, the Bible talks about that, how, you know, you, you never know that person over there who's begging for money, that person over there who maybe needs a handout of some sort or whatever it is, a situation. Sometimes they come and they actually help us because the Bible says in Hebrews 1 that they minister to those who are going to inherit salvation. And I've heard stories, many angel stories, you know, but most of the time their 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 glory, their angelic majesty is veiled. But if that angelic majesty is unveiled. We see it in the Bible, man. These glorious creatures will overwhelm us. And it's like, you just fall on your face. And that's what happened with Daniel when Gabriel came near. And, 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 you know, in looking at Gabriel, his name means man of God. 
but he's not a, a man, he's an angel. He's mentioned by name four times in the Bible here in Daniel 9.21, and then over in Luke 1.19 and Luke 1.26. He is explicitly identified as an angel, and he even says in Luke chapter 1, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And so this is pretty heavy. He's not your random, typical angel. As a matter of fact, and again, we're not 100% sure because the only one that's really identified as a, a cherub is Lucifer and um, Michael, the archangel. They, they have those titles. But a lot of people believe that uh, Gabriel and Michael and Lucifer were the three uh, cherubs anointed archangels of heaven. And we know, of course, that Lucifer fell. If that's the case, then this is, a, uh, this is one of the high, top-notch ranking angels that appears to Daniel. And uh, it's interesting, when you look at the story in Zechariah, remember when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and he said, I know you're old, I know you're old, but you're going to have a, a son. Remember when Zechariah was there offering incense, symbolizing the prayers of the people? And so remember Zechariah said, I don't think so. I'm old. And what did Gabriel say? You're busted. You don't believe me? Now you're not going to be able to speak. And so I just want to throw that out there at you guys because you better believe what Gabriel says, okay? (laughs) Otherwise God might punish you. This is not the words of Gabriel. These are not the words of Gabriel These are not the words of, you know, your average angel. This is the one who stands in the presence of God. And we need to take these words to heart. And what we find is that angels are able to appear as men, but if we get a glimpse of their angelic glory, we're overwhelmed. And so Gabriel gives the interpretation. And at first it's pretty simple. In verse 20, he says... The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And so um, we have a a picture of that, if I'm not mistaken. And there you see this huge uh, empire. I think it's uh, on the map as uh, the green section. Um, No one had ever conquered the world like this. You know, here you have uh, Media and Persia. They're coming from the east. And that's why when you read earlier about the ram, you know, pushing west. And look at the territory that he conquered. He identifies the ram we read in verse 3 and 4 as Medo-Persia, the one horn higher than the other. Of course, we know in the Bible is in reference to Cyrus, the king, even called by Isaiah the prophet by name. And so God is in control of kingdoms and God is in control of kings. God raises up one, God puts down the other. We have to know that. You know, Warren Wiersbe said Cyrus and his armies did indeed push westward and northward and southward and defeat their enemies, taking Libya, Egypt, and all Asia Minor, and moving as far as east as as far as India, creating the largest empire ever in the ancient East. And so he gives the interpretation real simple. Next we read in verse twenty one. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between the eyes is the first king. 
and we have a picture of this map as well. Uh, the Grecian Empire was even larger than the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was from 539 B.C. to 332. And then we know the Greeks were in power from 332 to 63 B.C. And this is the male goat we read about in verses 5 through 7 that came now again from the west. And that's where you see Greece and he travels east, hovering swiftly across the earth, conquering the world furiously, powerfully, having a notable horn between his eyes. And of course we know this is in reference to Alexander the Great. Now, a lot of this is similar to what we studied in chapter 7. And of course we know the king of Greece Alexander began his conquest at the young age of 20 years old. So at 20 years old, he set out to conquer the world. Uh, some say he did it in 11 to right around 12, 13 years. And after he conquered the whole world, he wept because there was nowhere else to conquer. And so history tells us, and we're not 100% sure, but you know, large in part, he got drunk. He went and he fell asleep. He got, uh, fell asleep outside, he got rained on, he got sick, he got pneumonia, and he died at the age of 33, right? So he didn't have a, a, a son old enough to take the throne. And that's what we read next in verse 22. It says, As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Now remember, this is written in 551 B.C. This is written before any of this had taken place. God just wants us to know that I know the future. God says, I want you to know I know everything about the future. You know, the other day I was reading through um, the life of David. And uh, remember when David rescued uh, the, 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 was it the Kelites over there in Keilah, something like that. And he rescued this village. And, uh, and he was there. He was hanging out with them. And then... They told Saul that David was there. So David found out that Saul was on his way. And, and David asked the Lord. He said, Lord, will they deliver me into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, yes. They, they, would, they would deliver you. If you stayed here, they'll deliver you into the hands of Saul. And so David left. So it didn't happen. But you see, God knows everything, all the possibilities. He doesn't know what would happen. That's the God that we serve. He knows everything about your future. And that's why it's so important. He knows what's going on tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen next year. It's so important that we make Jesus our Lord so that the future is our friend. And God says, I know everything about the future. and I'm, I'm in control. <laughs> There's no way they can, you know, one kingdom overpower another unless God allowed it, right? And so these four kings rise up and reflects the division of the Grecian kingdom into four provinces after Alexander's sudden and unexpected death in 323 B.C. His generals fought over the conquered land, and after 40 years of struggles and warfare, the four major divisions emerged. When you read this prophecy right here, it all kind of happens relatively subsequently from the time of Daniel. But when we get to verse 23, okay, it takes a different 
angle. It shifts gears. It's catapulted into the future in a large part. We're going to see in reading this, it does have a historical significance back then. Antiochus Epiphanes, the ruler of Syria, but it primarily deals with the Antichrist. And so we read in verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. It would be kind of cool to know the future, huh? In one sense. We know what we need to know. And that's been given to us in the Word. And I pray that we would understand these things because it's repeated for emphasis. You know, we have now the reference to the little horn, which grew exceedingly and specifically toward the glorious land of Israel. We read that in verse 8. You know, um, and what we find is that this king that rises actually rises against God and his people. Um, there's a lot here, you guys, but, um, you know, what we find is that this leader is going to be part of bringing the transgressions to the top, bad to the brim, an overflow of evil. He'll be, in the language right here, a stern-faced politician, a master of intrigue, bold and empowered by a power outside of himself. We read that there in verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, right? And uh, he's cunning. Um, as a matter of fact, the King James Version puts it this way. It says, through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And so some type of political policy that this enemy will use craftily. But in looking at this, you got to know that this is speaking above and beyond some normal man. If you go back to verse 10, notice what it says. It says, and it grew up to the host of heaven. I mean, that's high. <laughs> the host of heaven, uh, undoubtedly a reference to the angelic beings. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. Undoubtedly a reference to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 where the Bible says the devil drew a third of the angels down, you know? And, and, you know, just in case you're thinking, well, you know, the devil's got now a third of the angels, and I'll bet you he treats them good. I'll bet you, you know, he gives them vacation and, you know, benefits and a uh, nice place and all that kind of stuff. Hey, because they chose to be on my team? No. Look what it says that he did to these fallen angels. It says, and cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That's the demonic realm. That's the way Satan leads. 
we get a, a little bit of insight into these things that go on. You know, you can read about Satan's fall in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and also in Ezekiel chapter 28. It's interesting, when you read those passages, the Bible reveals some of the details of the fall of Satan, and it always starts like it does, even here in the book of Daniel, as referring to a leader of a great kingdom on earth, but then it eventually moves over, it morphs into Satan himself, you know, and what we find in Isaiah 14 is that he said in his heart, I will exalt myself. Don't even know for sure if he ever said it out loud. We're not 100% certain if he ever even articulated it. But he said in his heart where God hears, I will exalt myself. Above the stars, above the clouds, I will be like the most high God. And so the Lord cast him down, right? Ezekiel talks about how he was so perfect. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 28, 15 says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. I mean, just perfect, beautiful, amazing, until iniquity was found in you. And so, you know, what we're talking about right here now is we're talking about the devil. And God wants to know about him. God wants you to know about Christ. And God also wants you to know about the Antichrist. God wants you to know about the spirit of Antichrist. There's some of you here today, and just the way that the enemy operates is just, what can I do to oppose the work of Jesus in their life? Do you realize what Jesus wants to do? And the enemy comes in, boom, that's the one thing that he tries to stop. Back in Daniel chapter 8, in verse 10, we believe that the reference to Satan casting down some of the hosts is in reference to the angels that fell, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. And then we read in verse 11 that Satan exalts himself. Notice, even as high as the prince of the host, and if you look over at verse 25, as the prince of princes, referring to God, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and that's the one that proves to us the the devil he does all this and even comes against christ claiming to be the christ he's the antichrist empowered by none other than satan himself and you can read more about him in second thessalonians 2 where he's called the man of sin he's also called the son of perdition a title that jesus used for judas in john 17 he is called the beast in Revelation 13, where he makes war against the saints in reference to the Jews, killing millions of them. We read about the way he takes away the daily sacrifice. Remember, the Jews would have the morning and evening sacrifice every single day, and about his transgression of desolation in verses 11 and 13. Again, if you were to go to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, read about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And Jesus refers to this whole ordeal explicitly in Matthew 24, verse 15, and Mark chapter 13, verse 14. We're going to see it again and again and again in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And so why does God talk so much about this? 
And the only thing I could think of is that he really wants us to know this. And as a matter of fact, um, God wants his people to know and his people maybe even to spread the word to the Jews. You know, tell the Jews. Tell them. You know, to be utterly aware of all these things, that when that man rises up, whom you would have never suspected, man, that guy who's so-called a peaceful guy who made a covenant with you and the whole world thought was to be so great, when he allows you to build your temple and then he goes in the temple and he claims to be God, understand that that is the Antichrist. Don't believe him for a moment. Jesus said even flee because he's going to kill two-thirds of you, something we can read about in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. You know, now, now again, and I think it's important for us to know this, the fascinating thing about this is that, just in case you're wondering, well, is all that going to happen? I mean, are they really going to rebuild the temple? Is there really going to be an Antichrist? Is he really going to do, you know, this whole thing... Uh, persecuting the Jews, abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple, claims to be God, and God says, yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a historical precedence to this that symbolizes that. Just like, for example, the rapture of the church. Some people think, oh, we're going to disappear. You know, you guys, you know, your cheese slid off your cracker, man. You're trying to tell me we're going to disappear. Well, and that's when the Lord takes us back to Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 11 to Enoch. Enoch was walking with God for 300 years and then he disappeared. It's happened. And, and this has happened. And this is kind of why I think the Lord says this. There's a, double, uh, there's a double fulfillment. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, the ruler of Syria, 175 to 163 BC. All you have to do is go and research it simple online. What happened back then? And you find the whole thing was madness, but the whole thing was a miracle. You know, that guy right there, according to Warren Wiersbe, was known as the cruelest tyrants in history. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means manifestation, for he claimed to be a manifestation of the gods. He even had the word theos, or God, put on the coins minted with his feature on it. And then the features came more and more to look like the Greek god Zeus. The angry king attacked Jerusalem, plundered the temple. In 168, he sent an army of 20,000 soldiers to level Jerusalem. And they entered the city on the Sabbath day, murdered most of the men, took the men, the women and children as slaves. The remaining men fled to the army of the Jewish leader, Judas Maccabeus. But the king wasn't satisfied. So he initiated an edict that there would be one religion in his realm and it wouldn't be the Jewish religion. Any Jew found possessing a copy of the law of Moses was killed. He prohibited the Jews from honoring the Sabbath, practicing circumcision, and obeying the Levitical dietary laws. And he climaxed his campaign in 168 B.C., December 14th, by replacing the Jewish altar with an altar to Zeus and sacrificing a pig on it. That's the abomination of desolation that happened in the past that is symbolic of what will happen in the future. When Antiochus stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple and substituted pagan worship, this was called the abomination that makes desolate. And this concept is found in Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. And what the Antiochus did was foreshadowed what the Antichrist will do when he puts his image in the temple and commands the world to worship him 
forever. You know, and what you find in this cool, when you read the Old Testament and you read the Bible, is there there's shadows of the substance. There's shadows of the substance. And we've even seen other things happen. The persecution of the Jews. Will the Antichrist prevail? Look at verse 25. Of course, we know he won't. It says that he shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. The devil will be defeated, but not by human power. He will be defeated by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's actually a good verse just to know, hey, I can't defeat the enemies. I'm no match for him, but he's no match for God. In Daniel 17, I love the visual there. Daniel 2, 35 through 30, 34 through 35, how that stone you know, comes and it just crushes all other kingdoms. And this man, this glorious mountain, Jesus Christ one day will rule. It's interesting. Uh, in verse 25, he's called the Prince of Princes. In Daniel eleven thirty-six, he's called the God of Gods. And when Jesus comes back to do all this, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, he's called the King of Kings. I love that about him. And so... Here's the thing, you guys. The devil's, the devil's doing a work. He really is. And we've got to be aware of that. And so I pray that when we look around and we see um, people dying, you know, I was reminded of what William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said. One day he's teaching his class how to win souls. How to win souls. And he tells his class, he says, if it were up to me, I wouldn't send you to a class to learn how to win souls. If it were up to me, I'd send you to hell. Go to hell for five minutes. Come back. Then you'll win souls. Do you see what the devil is doing? We got to see what the devil's doing. May it press our hearts. But we also got to see what Jesus has done. What Jesus will do. And I pray what that does is that, is that blesses our hearts. Because we could look at the future and we can say, okay, this is what God has promised. And, and, I, and I just pray we would always have this balance. And so in verse 26, Gabriel says, the vision you've had is true. So seal it up, which means it's accurate. But in one sense, don't really spread the word right now, Daniel, because it's for later in the sense that it's meant primarily for those who will be living in the last days. This message was meant for us. And so he says in verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but... No one understood it. And so when I read him saying that no one understood it, I have a feeling that he didn't keep it confidential. (laughs) He probably took it to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, hey, what do you guys think this means? (laughs) Nobody could understand it. Because God said, I'm going to reveal it to you yet. It's for those people over there in the year 2014. I want them to know it. Why did Daniel faint? It says right there that he fainted. And we don't know for sure. It could just be his interaction with, with heavenly beings and visions so amazing. It also could mean that his heart was just overwhelmed with what the devil 
is doing and the way that he is just killing and slaughtering. And, and Jesus said, you know, you got to see the multitudes and you have to be moved with compassion because they're weary and scattered. You know, but afterwards he got up and he did his work, it says right there, and he went about the king's business and and and, and he went on, you know. And I guess in closing this chapter, and I know I went through it fast. I had a feeling it was going to be a tough chapter. A lot of information. But I want to encourage you to be pressed in your hearts by the devastation of the Antichrist. But I also want you to be blessed in your hearts by the salvation of Jesus Christ. For those of you who have put your faith in him, isn't it cool to know? You don't know a lot about your future, but I will tell you this. It's good. Huh. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? All things work together for good. Man, it's so cool to know that. And then we have our future at home where we won't gain any weight at all. No more sickness or sorrow or pain or death. No more devil. It's going to be so cool. Our future is good. It's so bright we need to wear sunglasses, and I never wear sunglasses. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid anymore. You want to know why you're struggling? You're blaming it on a lot of other things. You're even blaming it on people. You want to know why you're struggling? Because you're afraid. It's time to believe again. It's time to rise up and know who we are in Christ. And to know that the future is our friend because Jesus is my Lord. You know, I, I read this story. There's actually a map. Okay, so you guys have never been to Israel. Have you ever been to Great Britain? Anyone here? Okay, you guys again? All right. Anyways, um, there's a map over there on display in the British Museum in London. It's an old mariner's chart drawn in 1525 outlining the North American coastline and adjacent waters. The cartographer made some interesting notations on areas of the map that represented regions not yet explored. Not yet explored. And he wrote... Here be the giants, and here be the fiery scorpions, scorpions, and here be the dragons, and here be the serpents. And these were areas that were not yet explored. And eventually, the map came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, a British explorer in the early 1800s, who, when seeing all these things, he scratched out the fearful inscriptions, here be the giants, here be the scorpions, here be the serpents, here be the dragons, and he said, here be the Lord. And we got to know that. I know we get afraid of our future, but you know what? The Lord is there. He knows the end from the beginning, and he's called you by name. You're his kids. Don't ever forget that. And if you're not, the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
All you got to do is receive Christ today. I pray that you would. Lord, we thank you for your word, your love, your goodness.